0: Welcome to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Kate Farah, Managing Director of Q Energy Limited. Well, it's great to have you along for another episode of the Arate podcast. I'm very excited today to bring our first female guest to the podcast. I'm sure she'll be the first of many. Uh, It's great to get some diversity in terms of the guests and I'm looking forward to even more of that in the future. For those people who haven't listened to an Arate podcast before, Arate is a Greek word that means the fulfillment of one's full potential and the idea of this podcast is to get guests on who have achieved great outcomes in terms of their own careers, both in the executive and non-executive spaces, uh, as a way for people who are listening in to learn some uh, lessons and potentially get some advice which will help them to accelerate their own careers to their full potential. Arate Executive is my own business. It's been in existence now for seven years, and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. For more information about Arite, feel free to go to our website. Uh, There will be links in the show notes. The other thing that we uh, encourage listeners to do is to join our LinkedIn group, the CEO Incubator, which is a free group to join, currently at roughly 1500 members. The idea of that group is to allow for peer-to-peer networking across industry, and to allow people the ability to engage with uh, opportunities both uh, directly via people who are already in the group and also opportunities presented by Arte, uh both uh, executive and non-executive uh, vacancies. So please join the CEO Incubator to get access to some great information, some great networking and some great career opportunities. Okay, let's get on and introduce Kate to you now. Kate Farah is the Managing Director of Q Energy Limited, a role that she's held for approximately six years. She is also on the board of a number of utility and energy organisations, and is a director of Mata Health Services Limited. Kate has won a number of awards in recognition for her skills as a leader, including most recently in 2015, winner of the Chief Executive Women's Scholarship to INSEAD. Her qualifications include Bachelor of Music, Honours First Class, Master of Commerce, and the Advanced Management Program at INSEAD. She has also completed the AICD Company Directors course. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kate Farah. Kate, thanks very much for joining us on the Aratay Podcast, and uh, it is Friday. No doubt you've had a busy week. What are the kind of things that have kept you excited this week?
1: Well, everything in my life is exciting, I have to say. Um, I was pretty excited to be coming along here this morning, so thanks That's very good. much for the invitation. And I feel very honoured to be included in the company that, that you're talking to, so it's really nice to be here. Um, I have a very diverse life, so I'm the Managing Director of Q Energy, which is a business that I've built from startup uh, over the last five and a half years. And we've now got uh, 24,000 small business customers, electricity customers. We're an electricity retailer up and down the east coast of Australia. We're in five markets. We cover about half of Australia in uh, in terms of land mass. Uh, and so, obviously, um, running that business keeps me pretty excited and interested. Sure. It's an amazing, can I say, absolutely amazing industry, electricity, being disrupted all over the place. Uh, we've got solar, we've got falling demand, we've got batteries, you know, everybody knows and asks about Elon Musk and Tesla. Um, so, uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, time, actually, uh, to be in charge of an electricity retailer with masses and masses of opportunities. Um but it keeps you on your toes, no question. Cool. Um, so I'm also on the boards of MATA Hospital, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, pretty interesting to be in health services as mm. well. Um, actually, an industry that's very similar to electricity. Okay. Uh, it hasn't... Uh, I suppose progressed as far as the disruption is concerned in Mm -hmm. quite the same way yet but Mm -hmm. I think it will
0: and they've got a new CEO
1: and they have a new CEO the wonderful Dr Shane Kelly I'm interviewing
0: him for the podcast next week
1: are you really isn't that (laughs) marvellous he's uh he's a fantastic person actually we're very lucky to have him he's just amazingly sort of slipped right in you know because he's got so much experience Mm. in in very aligned roles um and Know great ideas um, about how to take the business forward, so that's fascinating. Uh, And I've also just joined the board of Unity Water, Mm -hmm. um, which is the water utility um, for New South Sunshine Coast and Pine Rivers, so Mm -hmm. it's kind of the north of Brisbane, southeast Queensland. Um, That's fascinating, too. So I've got a lot of Got a lot of experience now with um, uh, businesses that have quite a lot of assets Mm -hmm. but also services associated with them and Mm. and I find that fascinating because Mm. they're the ones being disrupted by the asset light industries Uh, and how do you nimbly manage through all of that I think is, is a big question.
0: Well, that's great. Well, we might uh, come and start to talk about those things in a lot more detail. What I like to do in terms of this conversation is really start by just talking about the formative years, you know, where you were born and what your young family was like and uh, early schooling, etc., to sort of set the scene for uh, how you progressed into your career.
1: Okay. Um, so, uh, I'm a pretty non-traditional person uh, and I had a fairly non-traditional entry into my career as well. Um, So I was born uh, actually in the UK but grew up uh, in Sydney um, and was very academic as a kid. I went to North Sydney Girls High, which was a a selective school at the time. Um, And I I was also extremely rebellious and my mother desperately wanted me to be a doctor or something conservative uh, and so I did music. Right, and uh, in fact, did a, uh, did an honours degree in Aboriginal women's music, okay. which was absolutely fascinating. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I pretty much got to the end of that and thought to myself, I need to be doing something where I can make a living, a genuine living. Um, and uh, so I was very fortunate at that time to be given a graduate traineeship at New South Wales Treasury Corporation, which mm-hmm. is the... Sydney equivalent of Queensland Treasury Corporation Mm -hmm. in Brisbane.
0: The logical choice for somebody who's done a course in traditional Aboriginal women's music.
1: Absolutely. Look, one of my friends actually, who knew me before and after the transition, used to laugh all the time at this concept of me tap, tap, tapping my way across the central desert with my computer and my high heels. Right. You know, so it's not a logical choice, I agree, but... I'm actually a very big fan of diversity in background Mm -hmm. um, and particularly academic diversity in background because Mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, I think that you find when you have an illogical choice um, of uh, academic background um, is that it truly, in the arts degrees in particular, they truly teach you how to stand back define a problem, solve a problem, research the problem. And you know, in this world where we have constant change, we've got you know VuCAD, which is the new word, the buzzword of the of twenty fifteen, I think, in this new world, in fact, I think um, skills refreshment, learning problem solving, um, applying problems to entirely different and fresh markets and changes and dynamics is incredibly helpful. Mm. And some of my best team members uh, in the past have all had very, very non-traditional backgrounds like history or, right. you know, I have a, a fantastic marketing chief marketing officer now who's the next engineer So he's entirely data driven, which is, of course, the new frontier yeah, sure. of marketing. So it is the, not the logical choice, I agree, but actually I think... You know it um it, it's it's been very helpful to me because it was so different
0: mm-hmm. well it's interesting uh, my background i left school and i was a professional musician for four years oh, wow. and studied uh, jazz at the conservatorium and peter Bertles from a super retail group he was a aspiring professional musician when he finished school so uh it's not an uncommon story that uh, music makes its way into corporate um Okay, so uh, you finished your honours, you got into your role, and and what, tell us, you know, how did things unfold from there?
1: Yeah, so um, it continued to be non-traditional, I do Mm -hmm. have to say that, Um, so uh, look, I often jokingly read my astrology, Uh I'm a Taurus, right, stubborn people. I think that's been good for resilience. Right. Um, but uh, I once had a cup that said that Torians were supposed to be uh, bankers, stockbrokers, musicians, uh, and, uh, and, and in retail, and I've done all of them.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So um, I was at New South Wales Treasury Corporation, and then my then husband got a National Science Foundation um, scholarship, postdoc, mm-hmm.
0: okay.
1: uh, and we went to rural North Carolina. Right. And uh, that was pretty interesting because um, there was a pretty challenging economic times uh, at that time. And uh, I took on a role going back to music uh, as a DJ at okay. a local radio station. Right. That was fun. Um, but to supplement that income, uh, I also sold advertising door to door mm-hmm. to small businesses. So that was my first sales training. Okay. And that was fantastic. Hardest job, well, pretty much one of the hardest jobs I've ever done. Particularly since it was a very recessed area at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, fantastic sales training and resilience training. Mm-hmm. So uh, got to the end of that, came back, in fact, to New South Wales Treasury Corporation, wanted to sort of give back to the people who'd reached out to me uh, in the first place, um, and then uh, went to BZW, W, which is Barclays Dessert Wed, at that time it no longer exists, right. a merchant bank, okay. um, to set up their quantitative trading desk. Okay. And that was fantastic. Loved that, because I got to do sort of making it up on the fly type of research. Right. Um, and then we moved to Queensland, uh, and I took over um, financial assets at Suncorp Investments.
0: Right, so we're talking mid '90s now. We're talking mid '90s. Okay, yeah. Right. So
1: I've spent the first, largely, the first sort of you know, fifteen-ish um, or ten-ish years of my career in financial markets mm-hmm. as a yeah. bond trader. Mm-hmm. Um, Now, one of the things that I do have is a a reasonable risk appetite, particularly Mm -hmm. for a woman, I'd Mm -hmm. have to say, who tend to have lower risk appetites in general. Um, But uh, as a trader, I looked at um, the bond markets, which kind of go up 10 ticks and down 10 ticks and up 10 ticks, Mm -hmm. uh, unless they're moving catastrophically, but that Mm. doesn't happen very often. And I thought, this is dull. So when I saw the electricity market, which goes from $35 to $13,900 right. in five minutes, I thought, that's the market for me. Sure. So um, I went to Ergon Energy Retail to run mm. their trading desk. And in fact, you know that was a watershed moment for mm-hmm. me to take over um, the, the electricity retailer there. And I spent the next eight years building up Ergon Energy Retail and doing some terrific fantastic experiences having mm-hmm. fantastic experiences there at urban energy
0: and was Ian the ceo at the time
1: no no um i had um a couple of ceos but the final ceo um was tony bellis right uh okay. he's now very well known sure. obviously um as a chairman of some really notable companies Absolutely. around town We've got and, China a and, ERM and a lovely guy yeah. yeah i'm very fortunate to have been able to work for him
0: mm. actually right hmm. okay good and um okay so uh seven years um Uh, eight years with Ergon, and then uh, from there to uh, ABN?
1: Yes. So what happened um, was uh, Ergon Energy Retail was sold uh, in the government asset sales programs. Um, I ran the Ergon Energy Retailer that was the sale vehicle. So Mm -hmm. I spent a year basically at the end of that time. Um, dissecting the original business that I'd built up, putting the bits together that made sense to sell, um, making it continue to operate Mm because you have to do that obviously in a sale time, um, and getting a good sale. So we had a fantastic sale to AGL. It was actually the highest per customer sale value in the history of the national electricity market. And uh, the record actually still stands today. So that was a fantastic experience for me to be able to have. Um, At the end of that, AGL, um, I guess, wound down a lot of the people infrastructure that I'd built up, Mm -hmm. uh, and I went to um, Morgan's Mm -hmm. Stockbroking to do a project Mm -hmm. uh, there, a back office project. Look, I really hadn't run back office before, and Mm -hmm. I I thought it was a good thing to do. Sure. Um, But I do have to say that I do love the electricity market, Mm -hmm. and uh, it continued to beckon me. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So um, after sort of two and a half or so years, I came over to Q Energy to start the retail operations there and have built it up ever since.
0: Right. So that's uh, a great uh, quick overview of your early career. Now let's get into the meat and potatoes of it all. So Q Energy, um, uh, describe what it looked like when you got there and what was the mandate for your role at the beginning?
1: Yeah. So um, Q Energy... uh, is a public company um, and um, it was initially uh, funded through a couple of angel raisings that were done by an original set of three founders. So when I went, I was the chief operating officer there to build up the retail business Mm -hmm. and there was existing funding in place, but uh, it was a bit of a mess because uh, one founder had... They'd sort of tried unsuccessfully previously to build up operations. One founder had quit. And a week after I joined, the chair, who'd just done the raising, also quit. Right. So we were in a bit of turmoil with our shareholders at that point. um, And I just thought... You know, interesting ride. Um, I'll focus on the operations. Yeah. So we did a really quick retail implementation, um, Mm -hmm. but the environment kind of deteriorated in terms of shareholder relations with the remaining founder, Mm -hmm. uh, and I became managing director um, three months after I started. Right,
0: okay.
1: Um, And that was basically coincided with um, recruiting our first customer. Okay. So um, we we, we managed to get ourselves up and running in about three months uh, and haven't really looked back since then. Right. Um, it, uh, the first year was, um, you know, it required some sorting out. Um, we had uh, a significant number of sort of capital restructuring resolutions that we had to take to um, the first AGM. Uh, and uh, and it, it did need um, a fair bit of attention to the sort of external uh, and internal stakeholder-facing um, parts of the business. At the same time, though, I managed to build up a fantastic team uh, and uh, so we actually achieved scale in Queensland we were just concentrated in Queensland we achieved scale uh, two years only two years mm-hmm. and we made a profit only two years after we started which I have mm-hmm. to say was a bit of a record for an electricity retailer.
0: Sure and so um, uh, how much of that team were in place when you arrived versus what the team looked like in two years time?
1: Yeah so look i um, There was no team uh, in place when I arrived, so I I built up the team. Um, And we've had um, pretty good stability of the team over the period, but we've done some fairly different things, I guess, through the process, and the team now has moved to the next level. I have Mm -hmm. a different team than I had at the start, and Mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, one of my learnings actually in running a start-up is recruit for the end uh, so if you can't afford the people who you want to have at the end, then right. you probably don't have enough money to start the business.
0: Well, so begin with the end in mind.
1: Begin and begin with the end and the people right. of the end sure. in mind. You just, know?
0: just before we get to that, that I'm interested, uh, uh, you know, here's a essentially a brand new startup. There's no team in place. What, what was it originally about the opportunity that got you excited and, and, uh, and then also excited about stepping into the role so quickly as managing director?
1: Um, so uh, I, uh, I have always wanted to run my own business. I've always wanted to own my own business and mm-hmm. I'm the third largest shareholder mm-hmm. um, of Q Energy. So I've uh, I've bought all of that, right. um, which is a big commitment on my part, sure. I have to say. Um, but, you know, reflects for me the passion that I feel about the business and about the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the recruitment, uh, I guess, is a process, you know, that you... You just go organically when you when you have no revenue or limited amounts of revenue. You do trying to try to build up your team mm-hmm. um, uh, one by one. Mm-hmm. I have to say, um, but it was really um, the idea of being the managing director was consistent. I guess with my view um, that I wanted to run and own my own business, and sure. and I hadn't quite expected it to happen so quickly, but. Yeah. I was very fortunate that it did
0: right and uh and you mentioned that having the right people there at the beginning to suit the end is a, a critical part of your leadership philosophy so when you've got a business which is very new and you know um, uh, doesn't have a lot of track record how do you what are the kind of things that you do to capture that talent early and uh, and uh, get them on board
1: yeah look um when I say the end in mind, I really mean you know a reasonably advanced stage of business development. I don't necessarily mean you know ASX 200. Sure. Um, and the reason for that is that there are very different risk appetites. Mm-hmm. I think for people who are at sort of growth mid size type um, uh, interest mm-hmm. and level um, versus ASX, who mm-hmm. often are. little more concerned about security and and don't have quite the same level of risk appetite it's really important when you're doing a growth journey and a startup journey that the people that you've got on the team um, have the risk appetite and the resilience to Mm -hmm. withstand the things that happen to the business because new businesses are not well diversified they're by and large you know not as capitalized as a big company Um, you know, they're nimble and you get to try new things, but they're much more fragile Mm -hmm. as well. And so it's very important that you have people whose risk appetite and and aspirations are Mm. consistent Mm. with the businesses that you're running. So my answer to your question is... um, that, uh, you know, when I went looking for people, they were ones who wanted to run their own business. They were ones who wanted to be equity partners. You know, one of the things that I did that, um, right from the start, and it's been probably one of the best things I've ever done, is to facilitate uh, a, a secondary market in Q Energy stock.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and so we have been taking people out of their position angels who Mm -hmm. initially funded the business Um, we've been taking out of their position and putting my management team into it since then. So we've become a much more management owned company, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, with the board uh, and, and blue sky, um is a private equity firm they're our cornerstone investor yeah um but you know mm-hmm. together we own um around about 50 percent of the business so mm-hmm. a very substantial investment mm-hmm. sure. on the part of the people who work and partner with the business mm-hmm. um again reflecting uh interest by those people to participate in an in an equity situation um but also genuine belief in the business
0: mm-hmm. and um okay so uh early achievements uh, to get to the stage at the year two where you really knew we are onto something here. It's really starting to power along. Um, You've been there, that was what, 2011? Yes. So that was four or five, nearly five years ago. What are some of the other key milestones since that time uh, that you're most proud of?
1: Yeah, so it was actually 2012 and I remember it very well because we got to an and cash flow positive and then the Queensland government changed the price cap mm-hmm. in Queensland and it made Queensland retailing basically non viable. Mm-hmm. So, um, a catastrophic impact, I have to say, for a small business that was entirely concentrated in Queensland. We had always intended to become a national electricity retailer, mm. but we had not intended to do it that quickly.
0: And did you have any foresight about that, or was it completely unexpected? Uh,
1: we had some months, but okay. not a lot of time. Uh, and so, what we did was a, uh, you know, a very quick implementation um, to grow the business in other um, other states. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, uh, at that time. Uh, Secured the um, three and a quarter million of equity financing from Blue Sky Private Equity,
0: okay. um, who own
1: twenty six percent of the company, mm-hmm. uh, and we um, that the purpose of that was for expansion mm-hmm. across the national footprint. Um, so we entered into four other markets very very quickly, um, which is a big. Big change. It's a lot to do in a small period of time. And one thing that I think I've learned from all of that is that every market is different. Mm. You know, in, in electricity, there are obvious differences across markets by the cost of wholesale and the way the wholesale dynamics work, as well as the retail regulations, but in addition to that, there are genuine differences in how people buy mm-hmm. and what people want, mm-hmm. and uh, that's been a really interesting and revealing process to us to go through that and understand the the different, the real differences across the state markets in Australia. Mm. So um, we've built up the business. We've, got about, we've had about a bit over 40% growth per annum in customers mm-hmm. per year um, and, and revenue. The revenue's bounced around a little bit because of the introduction of carbon and then the withdrawal of carbon, which yeah. in and of itself, I have to say, was um, quite something to sure. manage through the business. made a huge difference to our cash flow and uh, there was a lot of regulatory risk around that process as well. Um, But uh, here we are, we have five states, we've got 24,000 customers now, Um, all of our growth is occurring in New South Wales and Victoria, because Mm -hmm. Queensland continues to be um, a marketplace that is, you know, just probably not worth growing in, we're still overrepresented in Queensland, but Mm -hmm. you know, we're getting there in terms of balance. The other thing that we've done, um, so I feel very proud that we managed to make our way through some pretty tricky times there, I have to say. Um, Another thing that I'm probably really proud of that we've done over the last year, year and a half, is to establish our Manila operations. Mm -hmm. So I now have 55 people uh, in Manila, and they are my people, so I'm not outsourcing. Okay. Um, I'm offshoring. Yeah. And uh, it's a fantastic thing to have done. Absolutely fantastic. They're wonderful people. They're incredibly well-educated. They're aspirational. You get the labour cost arbitrage. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a, a fabulous experience to have had, and it's made It's made an extraordinary difference, actually, to our business. Um, We have a product review score, um, which product reviews, obviously, you know, a a kind of search engine optimization way, like Choice, of looking at at scoring and ranking different retailers. Um, Ours went from 1.2 out of 5 to 4 out of 5, and we're now number one in the market. Right. So, um, you know, I'm very proud um, of the work that the team Mm -hmm. have done to establish that. You're so number one in the
0: market. um, For
1: electricity retailers.
0: In Australia. In Australia. Oh, that's uh, an amazing accomplishment. And uh, what sort of functions do the uh, team in Manila provide for you? Uh,
1: We initially went to Manila because they are global best practice for voice. They have that lovely soft American sort of um, English and they're pretty good at English as Mm -hmm. well. Um, so, uh, it was our contact center that we initially mm. both inbound and outbound that we initially set up over there. But what we're finding actually is that there are an unbelievable number of really skilled professionals over there as well. And mm. so we're adding, um, we now have finance, marketing, um, okay. you know, we're adding technology prices, all that sort of thing uh, over there. And really what we're doing is retaining a strategy layer here in Queensland mm-hmm. um, and, and Melbourne. I've just opened a Melbourne office as well mm-hmm. um, because I think uh, proximity to market mm-hmm. and understanding of market culturally mm-hmm. when you're... You know, driving product and growth and channel and all of those sorts of things is very important. Um, but the actual outworkings are all done out of Manila.
0: Mm-hmm. And the ladies from Manila all seem to have lovely names from the Bible, don't they?
1: Well, yes, not just the Bible. We have one called Jelly. That's probably the most interesting one that I have.
0: That sounds like uh, the child of uh, some American uh, movie star. It does, not it? Yes, yes, it Uh, does. Okay, well, look, that's that's great. What I'm interested in is uh, in terms of your own career evolution. I mean, you had this appetite to own your own business. Uh, It came to you quite quickly in terms of... uh, Uh, your time within Q Energy. Um, What would you say are the ways that you've developed your leadership competencies over the business has grown a lot? You know, there's been lots of external challenges and opportunities you've had to deal with. No doubt a lot of that was outside of your sort of prior skill set. So how have you upskilled yourself over the time to meet those challenges and and be successful
1: yeah so um look i actually was fortunate to be able to rely on some fantastic sort of leadership training and work that i got from my time as chief operating officer at ergon energy um because uh they uh have had fantastic training processes and fantastic leadership processes so i feel very privileged actually um, to have been able to rely on that Um, But just over the last year, I started to feel like I needed to refresh it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I uh, applied for and I won a scholarship from Chief Executive Women to go Mm -hmm. and do an advanced management program uh, at INSEAD Mm -hmm. uh, in Fontainebleau in France. Mm -hmm. And I did that in July. So that was just a fantastic experience for me. And I can't say how grateful I am to Chief Executive Women um but also encourage any women listeners to apply for those scholarships. They're, they're, they're a marvellous thing. Um, that seeking. was a
0: residential program?
1: Yeah, so it was a one-month immersion program. Okay. Um, and uh, there were 75 people from all around the world, 30 mm-hmm. different cultures. Um, the things that they focused on uh, in terms of the academic content um, of INSEAD were strategy. So mm-hmm. they, they focus on the three skills deficits that they find most often Mm -hmm. in senior leaders. So strategy um, and particularly in this fast-changing, you know, VUCA world, how do you you manage your scanning? You know, how do you manage your knowledge acquisition? How do you order it? How do you organise it? How do you find out what's important? Um, So strategy is one, engagement, Mm -hmm. um, particularly um, up, down and sideways, Mm -hmm. uh, and that was great, uh, and communication. So, you know, leadership styles, communication preferences, all that sort of thing. Um, they were all marvellous, uh, particularly for me. The strategy and the engagement they were excellent. Um, but actually, one of the the things that I found most revolutionary was just participation in such a globally diverse mm. cohort. Mm. Um, so we had they put you in these home groups, which mm-hmm. are you know little teams that sort of go through the whole month, and we had the most globally diverse home group that you could imagine we were actually unbelievably dysfunctional mm-hmm. to start with and that's probably not unexpected because right. you've got 75 alphas mostly males sure uh, not, not exclusively so i put myself <laughs> in that bucket um uh you know right from the start and they really sort of smash you through the forming storming and norming right. phases in your group so it's quite um it's quite challenging mm. from an, a sort of an emotional perspective but um, we became the most functional professional group of all of them and got outcomes that we, I would never have come up with on my own.
0: In case study type environments? In
1: case study type environments. Right. So very experiential learning. Right. Yeah. And the thing that I found, the thing, it was a revelation to me because I have always felt that I needed to have the answers. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get to the top, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, in, mm-hmm. the, in, the, in the modern Western sort of capitalist world. Mm-hmm. You have to have the answers. Whereas now... What I know is that in this world, I will be a most effective leader if I have the question and I bring the people together and I facilitate a process to find the answer together. And as long as I stimulate diversity in that group of people because there is no way that uh, as a home group we would have got the outcomes that we got without the cultural diversity and different experiences that we had within that home group.
0: That's really interesting because... uh in many respects, that's a bit of a leadership cliche, isn't it? Mm. Surround yourself with good people. Um, you know, I, can think, I can't think—I can think of the exact quote, but even Henry Ford talking about there was no need for him to hold the knowledge. He just needed to know the right questions to ask mm. and so on. But for each individual, you've got to have that aha moment where it becomes real for you. Mm. You know, you can hear all of these sort of cliches are used out there, but until... Uh, it actually smacks you in the face and goes, right, I actually get it now. And obviously, that was one of those moments for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, one of the other people who's been on the podcast uh, is Martin Moore, um, CEO of CS Energy. He did the Harvard eight-week program and like you, uh, believes that it was a absolutely pivotal, a pivotal moment in his uh, career and his leadership development. And I know that for him, the cohort and those relationships, he did it a few years ago now, have been uh, extremely valuable. So that's a, that's great. And so um, if you think about all of your learnings there and coming back into your workplace, what would be one example of where you applied something very successfully since then?
1: Uh, look, it has entirely changed the way that I'm dealing with my board. Right. Absolutely, and it is so wow. much more functional. Okay. It is, it's fantastic, actually. So um, you know, when you need to know the answer yourself, um, you really don't. I don't think make the most use of. of the unbelievable experience that you have around the board table. Sure. Um, and what INSEAD gave me was a process. So they had this um, this fantastic process, which they called Fair Process Leadership, mm. and what it was was an engagement um, engagement process, but. I have always struggled with how do I continue to, to make the decision? You know, I, I know more about the environment. How do I continue to make the decision and still ask people for mm. input? Because what you know? What do I do if I don't take their advice? Sure. Um, and basically they, they said separate engagement and decision rights. Mm-hmm. So um, tell people it's going to be my decision um, and... I haven't made a decision yet. Here's mm-hmm. the question. Mm-hmm. I have a view, but I want to know your views. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I make a decision that is not consistent with your recommendation, I will tell you why mm-hmm. and I'll give you some more of the context mm-hmm. so you start to learn and understand, you know, some of the other things that I'm juggling and thinking about. Um, but what that allowed me to do was to um, take in input from board members, to take mm-hmm. in input from from people around me who don't even they're not even in the industry you know Mm -hmm. but they do live in the world we Mm -hmm. live in Mm. uh, and that's important for scanning Mm. so my inputs to decision making are so much better now and Mm. my engagement at the same time particularly of the board is so much better now Mm.
0: and one of the things I like about uh framing it in that way is you're still retaining control. Mm. Whereas instead you're saying, look, I'm not sure, what do you think? Mm. You're handing control. Whereas in in by framing it the way that you just did is, I'm in control, but I'm interested in you having some input into the decision that I make. Mm. Uh, oh, that's very powerful. And mm-hmm. how's that been received uh, both upwards and downwards within the business when you Presented that explicitly.
1: Look, um, particularly well, I think very well actually. Um, Particularly downwards. um, You know, we are living in, as I said earlier, pretty chaotic times. Mm -hmm. Um, You've only got to look at some of the listed energy company share prices to see uh, how chaotic the times are that we are living in. Sure. Um, And so, um, you know, my team also comes to me with this view that they have to have the answers and. And sometimes it's just too, ha- too hard to have the answers on their own. So by present- presenting to them this framework and saying, this is how I'm approaching it, and I think it would be helpful for you if you approached it in the same way, it has taken the burden mm. from everybody mm. of the need to have the answer. Mm. Now, interestingly, the framework um, that they presented at NCAD actually requires you to have your own view first. Okay. So post Post the question Mm -hmm. to all of those who are going to input. Ask them to come with their view. So in other words, you have to make your own decision first... Um, so that people have thought about it mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then come together and that's mm. when you get the really rich outcomes. Mm. And I've seen that demonstrated so that you don't lose any of that individual intellect mm-hmm. and you still get individual engagement with the mm. problem, but then what becomes clear by wisdom of the crowd um, is what the most important pieces of mm. that intellect are mm. to apply to a particular problem.
0: Mm. It's interesting yeah. as you're talking about that I'm thinking about... Uh, You know de Bono's six hats and some of these Mm -hmm. other uh frameworks for um consensus and decision making that are you know um adapt over time and and uh, they are used and then a more sophisticated model comes out and no doubt you know in the future even more sophisticated models will come out again i mean it's obvious that you've always had a commitment to ongoing education um uh, you did your original honours, Bachelor of Music, and then a um, Masters in Commerce. You've done the AICD program and so on. So how important has, um, you know, this uh, appetite for ongoing professional development been for you, not in terms of only yourself, but essentially how you think it's that you've been perceived and uh, recognised and offered opportunities because of that? Is it a big deal?
1: Uh, I think it's a very big deal personally. So um, it's interesting uh, if you read Sheryl Sandberg's book Lean In, you know, she really um, talks about this imposter syndrome of women, which basically where sort of leading women, including herself, um, don't feel that they're ready for jobs and they don't reach out and take the jobs. Mm. Um, now, clearly, uh, given my peripatetic career, um, I'm not necessarily falling into uh, into that sort of a, a trap, but I do, once I get to the new job, which I've had no training for, do um, I do sort of have this thought to myself, how am I going to do this? Yep. Um, and I must say that the ability to access learning on the job, and that includes, you know, observation of how other people do it, learning on the job itself, but also undertaking um, ongoing education. I think that's a really important element mm. of my preparedness and ability to do jobs for which I haven't had specific training Mm. and look I have found that really useful uh, in my board careers as Mm -hmm. well you Mm -hmm. know um, you go into a board that is not um, directly in your line sort of role, in your line industry. And it's important that you learn mm. those industries pretty quickly. And mm. I think that attending courses and seminars and all that sort of thing is a very important way mm-hmm. um, of understanding the context and getting yourself up to speed mm. with the things that are specific to that industry mm. so that you can add most value with the things that are general.
0: Mm. I think that's an, uh, an excellent point. Um, and certainly... Uh I would say most of the CEOs and senior executives that I work with and who are successful uh, genuinely have an appetite for on growing, ongoing growth, whether it is in a professional environment or a spiritual environment or you know whatever. And um, I think learning is such an important attribute of a, a good leader. But uh, just to uh, sort of make a quick segue, recently I went to, a gender diversity debate that was held here in Brisbane, and there must have been about 150 women there and about five guys. And uh, good for you. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> big I, high five. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, I knew two of the guys who were um, speaking uh, on a panel. And in fact, they've both been guests, uh, Martin Moore and Peter Birdos. But um, there was quite a strong attitude amongst the the ladies in the audience. Um, you know that they want the opportunities that they feel they're being denied, and And uh, there's a genuine uh, level of um, angst, I suppose, about, well, how do I actually break through this glass ceiling and and get to where I want? And I went back and I did an analysis of the last four C-suite roles that we'd recruited that previous month. Three out of four of them were in the not-for-profit area. In terms of individual unique candidates across the four roles, maybe 600 candidates uh what percentage do you think were female
1: well for -for not-for-profits i would have thought it would be okay to be honest maybe 30
0: seven (gasps) percent so seven percent terrible well i think for me and i wrote a blog about it which uh uh i produced um uh, via linkedin uh pretty much immediately afterwards is that i think the challenge is we've got to encourage more women to put themselves out there and take the risk of making an application for a role that perhaps they feel a bit uncertain. Do I have the qualifications to do this? Because men typically have no issue with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas um, it sounds very similar to the book, Lean In, that's really the sort of thing that she's talking about, I imagine. Um, uh, And I hope that we can educate uh, more women to start to, really take advantage of of quite a positive environment. I mean, I would say in almost all occasions where we're recruiting, uh, we are told to actively try and have good representation of women uh, on the short lists. But if you don't apply, then you can't be there. So, um, okay, so let's... uh, I'm also really interested in the fact that uh, obviously Board experience has been important to you, and I note from uh, your CV, you know, your board experience has got a, a blend of uh, not-for-profit and uh, and moving into more sort of commercial boards now. What kind of uh, strategic thinking did you put behind building a board portfolio to uh, complement your executive career, or did it just kind of um, happen by chance?
1: Uh, it was probably a bit of a combination of mm-hmm. both. Um, you know, I, I started off in the arts with a great interest in the arts because I'm a an ex-musician, sure. um, and uh, I think the arts is always crying out for people with business mm. experience. Um, so I was fortunate to have been approached um, for my very first role mm-hmm. um, by a little not-for-profit called Hands On Art, um, which did... Kids' workshops, actually. It was very experiential. Kids' workshops at Southbank. Awesome experience, very challenging. The thing about not-for-profit environments is you're always massively constrained for money. Mm -hmm. The focus always has to be on the dollar, um, which is why. But you've got to get your outcomes as well and and deliver on the mission. Um, But that's why I think business skills are helpful. Uh, And um, I guess I I was able to leverage that experience into... um, being the chair of the Queensland Music Festival Mm -hmm. um, for five years. So um, that one... I I did specifically target, I have to say, because um, I have always loved music and I love the Queensland Music Festival because it's about drawing stories out of the community and setting them to music supported by great professionalism and Mm. excellence. So this whole blend of wonderful things that I I really support, community development, music as a way of telling stories, music as a way of enhancing life, but supported with excellence Mm -hmm. and and technical quality. Um, And so that one, I, I was actually rung up by um uh, the minister at the time and he said would you like to go on the library and i said no please can i have the music festival right. so i was fortunate to get onto that one at that time and that was great you know i really was able to leverage that one
0: how do you think you were on the minister's radar
1: um well uh look i suppose i had a fair level of profile after the sale of ergon energy yeah um you know i i'd have to say that we probably, through those at government asset sales, we did probably deal with almost every lawyer, almost every accounting firm, uh, almost every consultant in Brisbane and probably beyond, uh, because there was such complicated transactions. You know, mm-hmm. we were trying to build these businesses and make them work. And, you know, it wasn't an existing business. It was, we had to cut it up and create new things and make new structures and make the whole thing operate and look like a, a, an entity at the end mm-hmm. of it. So, um, you know, I, I managed, I was fortunate to develop a fair profile, I think, at that time. And I suspect it was through that process mm-hmm. that I was able to um, be on the radar.
0: Mm, okay. And uh, I know that you've achieved some great things uh, in that environment as well. What would you hang your hat on and say are some of the key achievements that you've had uh, in relation to the festival?
1: Oh, look, obviously, the most the most important thing that any board does is put in place the CEO. Right. Um, and uh, we had mm-hmm. two CEO changeovers during uh, my time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the executive director, um, who is still there now, he's fantastic. He's uh, out of the UK. Um, we appointed. Uh, and it was the first time that we'd sort of really separated out executive director and artistic director. Now, I wasn't chair when we made that decision. That was, uh, that was part of the transition process. Um, and, uh, and, in fact, I took over from a good friend of mine, Elizabeth Jameson, who okay. was chair for a long period and right. very, very big shoes to fill, I have to say.
0: From Board Matters?
1: From Board Matters, right. yeah, who, who's just a marvellous chair and sure. great for me to learn from, I'd have to say. Um, But what we did was was create a permanent institution at Mm -hmm. that time by separating out the executive director and the artistic director... Um, and then what we did in my time um, was to appoint James Morrison. Mm-hmm. And he's been an absolutely fantastic artistic director for the mm. festival. Uh, very engaged person in terms of development and leaving a legacy and community. So all the really good mission attributes and obviously an incredible musician mm. in and of himself. So um, probably that's, you know, I think focus on the CEO, get sure. the CEO right. Yeah. Um, that's the most important thing that, that I have done.
0: Great, right. and uh, certainly Ed uh, James has got his own iconic personal brand. No doubt that adds uh, even more weight Absolutely. to uh, the festival. So now, between your executive career and your multiple board responsibilities, and no doubt everything else that's going on in your life, I mean, how do you manage your time to give uh, each thing uh, the right amount of attention?
1: Yeah. So. Um I think that uh, one of the great things that I have done, I was reflecting on this to a person who's been my coach uh, for a long time um, yesterday, Uh, and in fact he reflected it back to me rather than me reflecting it, so it was nice to have that little learning um, one of the things that I've done, probably through the NCED process, um, is to get much better at releasing control and allowing the business to operate by itself, mm-hmm. and putting the right people in place so that you can do that. You mm-hmm. actually have to have really great leaders around you mm-hmm. in order to be able to step back and be a little bit more strategic. So um, I think that um, the, that the releasing, learning how to release control by getting the right people and mm-hmm. delegating. Um, that's a very important element mm-hmm. uh, of being able to fit in everything that I do. Um, that's certainly the case at my um, uh, at my sort of executive role um, in boards. You know, I tend to be relatively efficient at learning. Um, I love numbers. I love numbers. I don't particularly like graphs. I'd prefer a table of numbers because mm-hmm. I like to find the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it reminds me of music. I always think there's a story in a structure. Sure. yeah. and um, so you know i can I can extract what's going on from businesses reasonably quickly by mm-hmm. by looking at the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also, I think as a musician, you probably find this as well, but I think I'm incredibly lucky to be an auditory learner. Mm -hmm. Um, So people tell me stuff and I pretty much remember it all. Mm. And uh, I find that that's a very efficient way of learning is Mm. just talking to people and then putting the pieces together. Mm. Um, So that allows me to to fit an awful lot uh, into my day in terms of my work. Um, it's also important to spend the time, you know, on yourself and with your family. Yeah. So I have a 15-year-old son. Okay. He's fabulous. Right. Um, and I try to make sure that I do um, good things with him whenever I can mm-hmm. uh, and whenever it's important that I do. Do for, So, for example, on Tuesday nights, I take him to cello. He's a okay. cellist. Right. And I love that. You know, it's great us time and, uh, and I get to hear what he's doing and it's it's led to an ongoing commitment um, to music from him. You know, I, I go to all these concerts, and I, I've worked at the tuck shop,
0: right. uh,
1: which is really a great experience. Sure. Actually, because you really become part of the school community, and you know what's going on, you yep. understand how to find your way around the school, and what the politics are. All yeah. those things are important. Um, and uh, and so that's that's my son, um, and uh, and and my partner obviously spend time with him. But I think one of the most important things that I do is get up at four thirty and run every right. morning. Yeah. Because uh, I wouldn't have sanity. I mm-hmm. don't think if I did that. So I find that time, mm-hmm. my me time, really important uh, for processing ideas and things that are going on and working through emotions and issues and, and just keeping myself healthy.
0: Uh-huh. And do you uh, get out to do the uh, Gold Coast Marathon or any of those kind of things?
1: Half marathons. Right. Half marathons. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm running injured at the moment, so right. I'm not doing anything. Uh-huh. It's part of one of the sad facts of growing older, unfortunately, is <laughs> that, that you probably have to manage your aspiration a little bit better. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, but I have done a number of half marathons and I, I do love them.
0: Yeah, right. It's interesting. I was talking to Peter also. Uh, uh, he was a musician and he got into mathematics, which led to accounting, which led to his career. And I asked him whether he agreed with the, you know, the concept of people who are good at maths being good at music and vice versa. Certainly was his experience. Mm. It seems to be your experience mm. too. Um, oh, that, that's excellent. And so uh, I imagine um, that having a coach has been quite useful for you. I'm interested in asking a bit about that. Um, is that something that you've had for a long time?
1: Yeah, so I've had a number of coaches and I would have to say that that has been the thing that has made me the leader who is able right. to achieve the things that I have achieved wow. I, I would not have been able to um, achieve what I have without my coaching experiences mm-hmm. so um, like many you know bright young women um, I, I was probably fairly confrontational uh, and uh, not as um, appropriate in mm-hmm. my management of things when I was younger uh-huh. um, I did a, a an absolutely revelatory thing piece of 360 when I was at Ergon, and uh, it came back all the colours you don't want.
0: Right.
1: And um, I, I sort of sat down and, and looked at it and thought, wow, you know, I'm, I'm a career-oriented person, goal-driven person. My goal is to have a leadership career. You can't be a leader with that sort of colour map.
0: Right.
1: Uh, so I've got to learn how to be a more nice human being You're to people.
0: You're
1: LSI. Yes, I am talking yeah. about LSI. Yeah, there was a lots, of, lots of red, <laughs> lots of red on my... Uh, on my score and look there's still there's still a fair right. bit of red frankly because I'm you know I am pretty goal oriented yeah. and I am pretty business oriented sure. um right. so uh, I, I was fortunate that ergon had, had a coach they had a coaching system in place in there and uh, and it taught me you know how to be a human being right and uh, and it was great you know and now I, I see the difference in how I interact mm. with my whole team now than I what I did 15 right. years ago you know I, I'm far less Mm. business-focused, far more authentic, far more real. Mm. Um, And actually, that has allowed me to get the outcomes Mm. that I need to get. And it won't surprise anybody that that's the case. Um, But certainly, my feedback on uh, when I did my 360 for uh, INSEAD was uh, far better.
0: Right. Sure. (laughs) The reason I'm laughing is uh, I did LSI, and the colours on my LSI were all wrong too. And uh, for me, it, it was a, a realisation that, you know what, I, I actually don't want to manage people. Mm. Um, I would rather uh, support those who mm. want to achieve their greatest career potential mm. uh, in my capacity uh, than actually be the leader. And, and uh, that's part of my motivation for doing this podcast. But LSI, it can be frightening, can't it? You, oh, you, you think you're something and then it, it comes up you go, yeah. wow. Yeah. And um, you mentioned that you've changed coach a few times. Yes, Is that because you felt that You reached the sort of the end of that particular individual's capability to further assist you, or
1: no, no, just circumstances have changed. People's ability to offer me things Mm. have changed. Uh, It's it's really never been my decision Mm -hmm. that that to change a coach. Right. Um, It's always been externally driven. But every one of my coaches has given me something Mm. different. Sure. Um, And uh, I think all of that. I think having a variety. Once again, it gets back to diversity of perspective. Mm Having a variety of inputs mm. is 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 really really important. Mm. Just on your issue of uh, of the change, um, one of the things that I have always taken heart from um, is the fact that is uh, a story I heard of Mandelbrot. So right. Mandelbrot was the guy who did um, fractal theory, actually, in, okay. in, in chaos. He came yeah. up with that idea. Right. And as a 20-year-old uh, as a, as a PhD student, mm. um, apparently he sat himself down one year and said, you know, I'm not capable of interacting with anybody. So he had very high IQ and realized he had no EQ. So he took a year off. He actually took a year off physics to learn how to be, as he says, a human being. Right. And I thought, well, okay, if he can do it, sure. I can do it. Yeah. And um, and I think it is, mm. I really do think, you know, there are some people who are born with EQ. There are some people whose circumstances early on teaches them EQ. Mm. But I think if you are a, um, a person who wants to enough, you can learn mm. um, how to be someone who interacts better. And I've got to say that I am a much happier human being mm. uh, than I ever was then.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, look, at the... There's no doubt that it is a learned skill and I think that fundamentally people like to be liked mm-hmm. um, but it's just uh, finding the right way to express it and you've obviously done that well. I think it's interesting with coaching. Uh, I've been coached. I recommend coaches uh, to people regularly. Um, it's uh, it's uh, interesting that a lot of senior executives, um, if they have a coach, they hide the fact because they think that it is indicating that there's something wrong with me that I need a coach or they think, oh, I don't want a coach. Whereas the reality is the top sporting stars and the top actors and musicians and so on, they have coaches. So I think it's great that you, uh, you feel that that's been so valuable to you. And uh, I just want to ask a bit of a left field question uh, out of my own curiosity. Um, that early, early time um, studying the Aboriginal women's music. Um, There's a guy in Brisbane that I know who is a coach and part of his coaching is he takes executives out to have an experience of being in a traditional Aboriginal community and learning about their medicine and their spirituality Mm -hmm. and so on. What, if anything, do you think those learnings that you had way back then have uh, influenced your life?
1: Look, I think my lear- i think my learnings at that time were not so much about the content of what I was working on, mm-hmm. so you know, Aboriginal women's music, but actually about the. Um, th- there were much greater learnings at the time around. Uh, universities mm-hmm. and the university process mm-hmm. um, and it was a bit of a um, it was a bit of a, a fiery time for me mm-hmm. um, the department that I went to the University of Sydney was actually so political that the ABC um, actually later did not much later did a, a documentary on them. And it called the department and right. it was about political intrigue okay and uh, fascinating documentary but uh, a kind of a confronting experience i have to say to work through when you are doing what you think is good so i was trying to be good i was trying to do something good that had purpose that added value to the world mm-hmm. um, around studying aboriginal women's music um uh, in this environment that was really sort of uh, ex- intensely political and probably had some of the worst aspects of sort of Western culture that Mm. you can possibly see Mm. um so my learnings at the time were probably more about what not to do in Western culture Mm -hmm. than they um than they necessarily were um about Aboriginal culture I'd say
0: okay fair enough and uh so here we are it's uh nearly the end of 2015 um what's the next 10 years look like for you do you think do you have aspirations to achieve, you know, particular goals within that time frame?
1: Yeah, so look, I mean, Q Energy is uh, is continuing to grow and I want to make sure that, continue, that, that Q Energy um, has all of the resources in it to be the best that it can be. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, the thing probably that I'm most passionate about in Q Energy is not so much the electricity retailing, which... I mean I just got a study back today that says that uh, the least trusted companies are in fact electricity retailers right. so yay us right um but the thing that fascinates me most about Q energy is um first of all our customer base which is small businesses because mm-hmm. they're an incredibly challenging segment of the market to mm. challenge to 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 service mm-hmm. um for a couple of reasons first of all they Mm non-homogeneous so incredibly diverse people are different by industry people are different by size people are different by corporate structure you know so when you say small business i think one of the reasons why it's very hard to service properly is there are so many different bits of it sure um and so working out how to do that in a cost-effective way i think um is is quite a passion of mine and that's something that uh, is a core competency for q energy um the other thing that i find absolutely fascinating about um about Q Energy, and this is an electricity retailing attribute, is the data. So I, I love data. I love yeah. numbers. I love data. My master's in is in econometrics, actually. So mm-hmm. I'm a very data-driven person. Um, but what I see um, these days is that data is the new frontier, and yeah. I love the fact that we have access to so much information. That it's overwhelming to a lot of people, but for me, I think it's an enormous opportunity to know your customers and give them the best experience and the best product and the most tailored um, experience that you could possibly have. So mm-hmm. the challenge for Q Energy, um, you know, that that we are working on really now is to to turn small business data in a cost-effective way into something that is unique intellectual property, and that's a process we're going through now. So I'm really looking forward to um, you know making sure that we realise the value um, on that set of thinking, um, and uh, I guess beyond Q Energy, and I don't know what that will be or when that will be, um, but you know over the next ten years, obviously um, I, I will no doubt. Tra- I'd like to transition to an, an all board portfolio career Mm -hmm. um i think that uh, i i enjoy in my boards i enjoy the different industries and learning about the different industries and the different organizational dynamics but also seeing the similarities i find that fascinating Mm. Um, and so i'd like to to do more of that you know with larger boards and, and national boards that that would be my intention
0: okay great and just to close out the discussion because we're getting right at the pointy end uh, if you were talking to the people listening to this podcast, what are some of the key pieces of advice you'd offer to them uh, to enable them to achieve their full career potential?
1: Yeah, so look, um, uh, if it's a woman who's listening to this, um, can I say, read Cheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. Actually, start off by watching her TED Talk. It's just fantastic. That was the one that preceded uh, Lean In, and it's why we have... We don't have enough female leaders or women leaders. Just Google um, or Yahoo, Sheryl Sandberg, very famous, absolutely fabulous. And it really tells you how to lean in. So for those um, not the 7% who actually did apply for the female roles, please watch the, the TED Talk, read the book and lean into your career, have mm. a go. Um, and, look, if you feel unprepared, don't forget that you can Access learning on the job. You can go back to uni. You can have a coach. You can, you know, go to seminars. You can observe other people and how they operate in your environment. You can do it. Just make sure you understand what your key attributes are that you bring, and look for connections and similarities whilst you're leaning into the role. So, um, for women and and men, they don't need that sure. advice so much. But um, I, I think that's a really key piece of advice that I would give to women who are aspiring to fulfill their real potential
0: that's excellent and for the women who are listening who i've asked to be a guest on the podcast you know use uh, kate as an example of what a nice pleasant experience it is and i'd love to have you on <laughs> i found that i've asked quite a number of uh, very senior female board directors. And uh, to date they've been a a little uh, gun shy about participation, but I'm sure that now that uh, you've uh, led the charge, we'll get a greater take up. And I just want to say, um, as well as uh, uh, Kate's uh, recognition by um, Chief Executive Women to do her scholarship, she's also a finalist in the Telstra Business Women's Awards in the past, a winner of the Queensland Business Review inaugural Women in Business Awards and a finalist in the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Northern Region Award. So you've obviously uh, impressed a lot of people, and I'd really like to congratulate you on behalf of the listeners for that and for an an excellent hour. Thanks very much. Just before we wind up, is there anything else you'd like to say uh, to close out the conversation?
1: Uh, So to those women who he's already asked, it was terribly painless I definitely recommend it. A great experience.
0: Oh, good on you. All right. Well, have a fantastic weekend. And uh, for everybody listening, uh, looking forward to catching up again soon. Bye. Thank you. Well, I found that conversation with Kate really fascinating. And I particularly was interested in how somebody who started their early career completing a Bachelor of Music has ended up managing director of an ASX listed organization. I think one of the things about Kate's conversation which I really appreciated was the fact that she was very open about her utilization of executive coaches throughout her career. And I think it's interesting that in the corporate space, a lot of senior executives are either reluctant to take on a coach or where they have been coached or are being coached, they're reluctant to let people know about it almost as if they're ashamed that they use a coach, as if it means that there's some element of their performance which is weak. Uh, Whereas the reality is that coaches are used in most other elite sports and other industries. And I think that, you know, for Kate to talk about how useful and instrumental having been coached has been uh, is great because I hope that other people listening will recognize that there are times where taking on a coach is definitely the right thing to do and is a great way to accelerate your career. So thanks very much for your attention. I'm really looking forward to uh, engaging with you again in future podcasts. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.